What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Jordan Joy on the line. I'm super excited to have this conversation because I've been hearing nothing but good things about him. But you got to dive into all kinds of different things. So without further ado. How are you, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Glad to be on. Oh, thanks. I'm great and glad to have you on, man. Give me some background on, you know, what what your like, what brings you into the, into the low carb keto space in the first place. Like, I've been stalking your Instagram, and I know you've got a like you're a PhD student. What is your what is your focus on there, for instance? Uh, well, my PhD, I started. Uh, if we go into the story of how I got into low carb, it starts way before that. But I. I uh, did my PhD recently finished about a year ago, actually, um, it was in May of last year. So uh, I did my uh, my PhD in nutrition and my dissertation topic, I was fortunate enough to be able to pick myself because uh, I have a long history in, in research with like Dr. Wilson and Ryan Lowry and those guys, uh, we all kind of came up together. So I uh, managed to get my own funding for my dissertation project, which was looking at uh, targeted carbohydrates within a ketogenic diet is the primary outcome for that one. Where'd the motivation come from getting on the ketogenic diet in the first place? Like where'd that transition start? Oh, well, this is a, it's actually, I really love this story, especially if I can get it uh, into the ears of people who aren't keto or are kind of like anti-low carb. Because when I heard about it at first, uh, it was when we were in the lab together, uh, you know, Jacob, and, and Ryan and I and the rest of the guys. And uh, I was really new to research and I was, but I was just a sponge for everything. I'd sit in the lab, I'd listen to everything that Jake had to say because Jake studied the science of bodybuilding, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I was, you know, listening to every word and the big organizations in strength and conditioning and muscle building were NSCA and ISSN. So we were going to those conferences and it was the first year. <clears throat> and, uh, Jake's teaching us, kind of like showing us the ropes because uh, he's been before. And we're just a bunch of kids, you know, uh, college kids, like 20 years old. And so he's like, you got to go to the, you know, don't get sidetracked by the titles of the talks. You know, go to the best speakers because they're going to provide you the best information. So we went to see uh, Dr. Volick talk at NSCA the first year I went. And largely because him and his team with Kramer at the time at UConn, now at Ohio State, we're just pumping out research constantly and Kramer's the, you know, the head of the NSCA. So you got to go to his colleagues talk and he's talking mm-hmm. about low carb and everybody who's listening to your podcast probably knows Dr. Volick and, and what he does. And, um, but we were sitting in the audience as college kids. And then Jacob as the, you know, the leader with his, he's a doctor, PhD, he knows uh, a lot of stuff and he knows, uh, but even still it was, we were listening and then we were sitting on just like, and and Dr. Vogue's talking about, of course, you know, being a low carb uh, endurance athlete, and we're sitting there like, bull. <laughs> There's no way you can perform that well without carbohydrate. There's no way. Uh, but you know that passes. We go back to the lab. Um, I don't know how much time goes by, but uh, Jacob's also really close with Sean Wells, who's another uh, figure in low carb, and he's been low carb longer than anybody else I know, I think. Um, yeah, he's been in the game for a while. I don't know how long he's been doing it, but he was doing it way before it was popular because he found benefit from it. Um, but those guys were close. So I went and he was at Diamantize at the time, Sean was. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I wanted to get into supplements and we had met through Jake and 
just oh he had opened the door so i did a short internship at dimatize um i think i was i think it was between my junior and senior year of undergrad um i went but i went when i went out there i stayed with sean so this was actually uh, as a preface we were doing high fat breakfast because we found a study by Bray that said uh, if you basically if you eat a high fat low carb breakfast and then even if you maintained your normal proportions throughout the day your high carb low fat proportions as in a 24 hour basis but it was uh, augmented such that you were low carb in the morning you had greater metabolic flexibility you'd burn more fat throughout the day so we were already doing like bacon and egg breakfasts and I continued that when I went to stay with Sean and I ended up cooking for him too in the mornings before we went off to headquarters and just eventually like his wife Shelly's great she was cooking for me too and I was eating dinner with them and mostly eating protein bars throughout the day uh, just because I had access to all the supreme bars and the protein shakes and everything but uh, eventually like we were eating dinner together and uh, she'd send me off with the same lunch as Sean and everything so but I was just working like I'd uh, you know, we'd wake up, I'd cook the eggs, we'd go to work, I'd come back, I was working on a presentation to present to their board at the end of the two weeks. So I was just working on that nonstop and lifting during the day. They had a gym there, so I was training uh, in the middle of the day. But two weeks go by, I go back to the lab and uh, I walk in and everybody is kind of staring. <laughs> and they're like, Jake finally goes like, dude, what are you doing? Like, what are you talking about? It's like, you're shredded. Like, look at your face. It's so lean. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I mean, like, I didn't really realize. And I thought about it and I was like, oh, I mean, I guess I was low carb during that time. Just like not without really realizing it just because I was eating the way that Sean and his wife were eating. And then yeah. uh, we wrote up a study design and we got that. That's the one that's published in, in JSCR now with Jake as lead author. Um, on, I think it's titled like Recreationally Active uh, Men or, you know, the effects of ketogenic diet. Weight training, recreation, recreationally active men, and you just we're looking at body comp, and we wanted to kind of control body comp, so we did it as uh, we gave them the carbs after, measured them again, and we see these big increases in, in muscle size, and they got lean, and they, you know, pretty much every all the performance markers were pretty much the same too. So that was just kind of uh, we were doing it ourselves, um, but that was that was the beginning, and that's what got us all started. I feel like there's a, a definite disconnect with the traditional, you know, bodybuilding community as it relates to low carb from a muscle building standpoint. I mean, a lot of this is, I think, all stems to ignorance because, like, you'll get bodybuilders that are, you know, obviously putting a priority on hypertrophy, and then they'll they'll claim to be keto, you know, during their prep, but their protein's still incredibly high, their fat is still really low, and their carbs are really low. But mm -hmm. from a, a muscle building standpoint, you get a lot of pushback from people in the traditional bodybuilding space and muscle building space that just assume that you can't really put on any adequate muscle with a low carbohydrate approach. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think that that's obviously, I don't think that's true. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing the diet and I don't think you would either. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, I think a lot of the problem with that is in the measurements. So when people will cite their research, and I've been very fortunate, obviously everything I've talked about so far, I've been very fortunate in who I've been able to meet and who I've been able to learn from. Uh, one of the other people I've been able to learn from, his name is Jordan Moon. He did his uh, doctorate with uh, Dr. Jeff Stout. And Dr. Moon is an expert on body composition. So while I was at Muscle Farm, I was learning from him, which was and Muscle Farm was my stop after I was in Jake's lab. Um, but Dr. Moon's a body composition expert. 
and he's, he knows all the ins and outs of the different body composition measurement techniques. And what you get with uh, low carb, obviously, you're going to have some glycogen depletion. And in, within the context of a study, they're maybe 12 weeks long. Almost none of them go longer than 12 weeks because the semesters don't go longer than 12 weeks. So it's not often that you get longer term studies. And with, mm-hmm. within that like three month time frame, um, you go low carb, you have the glycogen depletion and we can talk about maybe later, like, or if you've heard before and me talking with Danny or whatever it happens to be, um, I don't know what the actual adaptation period is, but I think it's sometime between those first like two to four weeks that people claim as adaptation and then up to like six plus months after where the rest of the body gets back online with the rest of its processes, including its regulation of muscle glycogen. And so, but within those first uh, few months, you're still going to be depleted. So they're taking these post measurements and they're reading people with less muscle glycogen. The machine doesn't know how to measure actual, like doesn't know how to quantify the tissue or how many muscle fibers you have. It's just looking at the volume of it essentially. And with the glycogen and the water associated with it missing, then it's going to read lower. So it's and that's with the, the DEXA scanner, right? It could be with the DEXA. It could be with a BIA. It could be with underwater weighing. Uh, I mean, any of the methods, uh, uh, air displacement, plasmography, the uh, BOD pod, uh, all of those are subjected to the same error. Um, and that's actually mm-hmm. been recently validated so much like with uh, glycogen and with creatine, even on an acute basis with uh, creatine loading or glycogen depletion, you have a significant change. Uh, even within a week's period uh, of how the DEXA or other body composition uh, analyzers will report the lean body mass or the lean soft tissue. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of frustrating because, I mean, a lot of people will use a biological impedance, you know, like in-body or something, and, and mm-hmm. they won't take note of the total body water that's illustrated. And there's a lot of fluctuation because those aren't the, the gold standard by any means. But Mm-hmm. Even if you have just a simple fluctuation in your total body water, that's going to illustrate a pretty significant drop in lean muscle tissue and an increase in body fat. And people start freaking out and looking at the numbers, but they got to dig a little deeper into what their water and their glycogen levels are. Right, exactly. And But I think that's where a lot of the that pushback comes from. Um, but when you control for that, like we did in the first study and like I've done since then with more advanced body composition measurement techniques, we don't see that. Um, when actually the guys uh, in the first study, we refed them carbs and then measured them again with the same device. And they had a huge increase in the amount of mus- muscle tissue that was measured. I forget the exact amount, but I think it was like four pounds uh, in a week's time of refeeding carbohydrates. So that's just that's all just uh, bloating the muscle with carbohydrate uh, and water to retake that measurement. And then when I did it in the other study, we're looking at we're using DEXA, we're using BIA and we're using body weights, which is an actual measurement whereas the other two are estimations, to come up with uh, using an equation based on cadaver studies where they actually cut people open, pull the parts out, and weigh them and take an actual measurement uh, to come up with how much tissue is actually there. And those studies, when I'm doing them, that shows that they're pretty much identical between keto and low-carb and actually suggesting uh, potentially more because there's a way you can kind of calculate the amount of actual uh, proteins and the protein mm-hmm. it wasn't significant, but it was slightly in favor of the keto group. Can you dive into the details in that study? Like talk about the the variables, the control group, the, the test methods, like kind of flesh that out a little bit for me. Sure. So this is my uh, dissertation research. We had four groups. 
And like I mentioned, is uh, we're looking at targeted ketosis. So we're introducing carbohydrate around training. But we had a regular keto group that didn't have that as a control. We had a regular carbohydrate-based control group that had 50% of their calories coming from carbs. All of the groups ate the same amount of protein. We only varied their, uh, their carbohydrate and their fat intake. And they're uh, consuming, I think, all four groups averaged about 2.1 grams per kilogram protein. So it's a high-protein diet still. Um, and then the targeted group, we had both a carbohydrate-based diet and a ketogenic diet with the targeted carbs. And we were giving them 20 grams pre-exercise, about 20 minutes pre-exercise of a low-glycemic pea starch, uh, also known as carb-10. You'll find it commercially as carb-10. Um, and we trained them for nine weeks. It was men and women. Uh, we had uh, three days of weight training and two days of cardio. One of those days was a low-intensity moderate-intensity day, and the other day was a high-intensity interval day. Uh, before testing, we tested them, or before training and the diet intervention, we tested them for uh, muscle strength as a back squat 1RM and a bench press 1RM, tested their vertical jump height, and we tested, uh, we did a repeated Wingate sprint test. So they did six total sprints instead of just one which I view doing just one for uh, ketogenic research or um, it depends on what you want to look at, but it could be claimed as a, uh, a drawback to some of the other studies looking at just one because they are not particularly relevant to sport because you don't only work out and you don't only compete for 30 seconds in most sports. So we did a repeated test for performance and we did a 5k and the 5k runs on treadmill. We had um, after the first thousand meters, as well as after the uh, 4,000 meters, we did 250 meters uh, at an 8% incline. So for a total of 500 meters or 10% of the test was at an incline. Mm -hmm. And we, took measure, we measured those inclines as well. Um, we did muscle glycogen estimation by ultrasound before and after the run. Uh, we did body composition testing uh, by, like I said, DEXA, BI. Is actually BIS, so uh, it's kind of like basically for all intents and purposes, it's BIA, uh, and we did the body weight. So we have a measurement and then in the body weight, and we have two estimation techniques with BIS and DEXA. Uh, body weight's great because it's going to get the body weight accurately, and then DEXA is really good for getting bone, and then we use those uh, through the equations developed from the actual weights taken from the tissues in the cadaver study. Uh, we make a regression equation, basically. We pop the numbers in, and then it tells you what you want to know in a little bit more accurate manner. Uh, it's a five-compartment or five-component model. And we did some some blood testing, um, insulin, glucose, uh, all the fats, and a couple of hormones, testosterone, cortisol, estrogens, uh, T3, T4, TSH. Um, yeah, that's the whole study. And how, how long was the study for again? It was for nine weeks. Nine weeks of an intervention. Nine weeks. Um, and then we did a week of testing on both ends of that, so 11 weeks there. And we also did a follow-up. So the keto participants, we had them after they had gone through the study, we started to – we wanted to look at the threshold uh, for the carbohydrates and calling it like a carbohydrate threshold. So we're bumping up their carbohydrates progressively over – uh, it was every two days we bumped them up 10 grams. and In the follow-up study? Yeah, we just wanted to see when they lost ketosis. So we'd bump them up, we'd go for two days, we'd test them, and if they were still in, we'd go for another two days uh, at 10 grams higher. 
Uh, we did that with both the low glycemic and then maltodextrin as a comparator for that. What were the findings there? The low carb, the the, the low GI one, that we had a couple last until uh, 70 grams, and then we actually ran into finals, so I had to end it there. They may have lasted longer. Um, but the uh, the low glycemic, they were able to maintain ketosis uh, for, it was significantly longer. Most people ended up exiting around like 40 grams. Everybody maintained 20 grams uh, with both maltodextrin and the carb 10. And then uh, the carb 10, they just lasted a little bit longer. So it had a little bit less impact on their ketotic state. With the, the, the test pool, was there a, like, did you pick people that were adapted for a certain period of time? Like how long were they adapted prior to being a part of the, the ketogenic group, for instance? Uh, they were not. Um, so we pulled all unadapted people. Some of them had done it in the past, but none of them were ketogenic at the time the study started. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, that's, that's hard, man. Like with the, with getting really good data in the keto space, because I think we're all in agreement that the longer you're adapted, the more efficient your body becomes as using keto or ketones as a primary fuel source. And it's hard, man. It's hard to get people to <laughs> agree to a study right. that involves, you know, just months and months and months of adaptation prior to the study actually begins. Um, especially, like you said, when everything's based on like a semester by semester protocol. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What What were the findings in that initial study with regard to uh, the muscle mass built between the groups? Yeah, so like I said, we had men and women. So um, the average gain was equal. It was about two kilos in all of the groups. Um, so the guys are listening to two kilos are like, I only gained four pounds. Now, four pounds in nine weeks is still a lot. Um, but this is yeah. also averaged in with women as well who are going to gain as a – it'll be equal as a, a percent change, but it'll be lower in a, its absolute magnitude. Um, but they still gained – everybody gained a lot of lean mass. And the way that we were calculating it, we were able to calculate or, or to estimate – protein content so like lean protein dry protein that's part of the body like i said it's not significant but it was trending in favor of the low carb group and i thought that was particularly interesting so if you're actually doing these studies well and you're controlling for these extraneous variables uh, we might actually see something that's opposite to what uh, the traditional thoughts are and it might actually be better and we see that also with some other mechanistic data where ketones are anti-catabolic and we've seen it in uh, some other studies where people who are doing ketogenic diet are a little bit better at preserving mass during dieting um, but beyond the the muscle mass measures uh, keto group lost more fat more weight in total not surprising there that's pretty consistent uh, but the performance stuff is where it starts to get a little bit interesting uh, strength was the same for everybody uh, so no detriment to strength gain with the carbohydrate restriction. Uh, vertical jump was benefited in both of the uh, targeted groups. So the groups receiving the carbohydrate, uh, both of them, the carbohydrate-based diet and the ketogenic diet receiving carbohydrates had better improvement on their vertical jump. And then in the Wingates, I th well, let's do the 5K first. They were the same. The short endurance numbers were pretty much identical. The carbohydrate helped preserve some glycogen based on our estimations with ultrasound. But I think it's with the, uh, the Wingate data that's particularly interesting. So we did the repeated tests uh, specifically for this reason, but 
Uh, also, just within the first set, so traditional research, when they're looking at these things, they usually just do the one 30-second test. And even within that, um, and this is what we found in the previous study, the one that's uh, currently published, the one that we did with Wilson, we did one test, the keto group, on that first test initially, before we reloaded them with carbohydrates, they were down 25 watts of power output versus an increase of about 25 watts in the carbohydrate group. Now, we did, obviously, we still have a first test for this study I did for my dissertation, and it was pretty much the same thing. We saw a decrease in the keto group without the targeted carbs, so just traditional keto. We saw an increase in the carbohydrate group, but when they were fed the pre-exercise carbohydrate, it was not just equal, it was not significantly higher, but visually higher by about 5 watts with the targeted carbs uh, within the keto diet. And that's just the first set. So we do the other five sets of the sprints. And we're tracking, we're measuring power for each one. And we're taking the power between the first set and the last set. So basically like a long-term power drop, seeing how much they decline between their first set and their final set. And for both uh, the keto groups, not just the targeted one, we see that the ketogenic participants have a lot greater fatigue resistance. So their power is not decreasing as much as it is in the carbohydrate-based dieters. Now that could be, you could argue that is because it was higher at the beginning, their first set power output was greater. But that's kind of, that argument kind of goes out the window when you have the targeted group that also had higher power output, even slightly higher than the carbohydrate dieters did themselves, and it's still not going down as much. So they have this much greater fatigue resistance, even to high-intensity activity. If you've ever done a Wingate sprint, you know they're like 100% all-out sprints. So you're just you're trying your hardest throughout the entire test, and there's no real room for sandbagging it. So the preservation of that power, I think, is incredibly significant for the athletic space because like i said earlier you're not you know you're not knocking somebody out in the first 30 seconds even though that did just happen like last weekend but uh typically your your athletic events are lasting a long time so to have that fatigue resistance you're going to perform better and you're going to be able to create greater adaptation even in your training and that also harkens back to what we just mentioned with the duration of studies and uh, this goes for all uh, adaptation-based like macro research you need to have the time sunk in to the study in order to let those changes occur and for the groups to differentiate themselves over a period of time for the the different studies you said protein was all controlled for were calories control control for so every group was consuming roughly the same caloric intake yep they were matched for uh, both protein and calories and what was the the fat ratio relative to total calories for this the traditional keto group uh, we did it so I based the protein on a grams per kilogram basis, and then I divided the remaining. I subtract. I did a calorie estimation, and whatever that was, we subtract out the protein calories, and then the rest was divided uh, seventy or sixty-five thirty-five as a percentage basis for the keto guys fat to uh, carbohydrate. Does that make sense? Yeah. So sixty-five percent. Are their calories coming from fat? It ends up being a little bit more. Um, I think the final percentage number from the total was a little over 
like 72%. But in both the targeted keto and the traditional keto, both groups saw an increase in lean muscle tissue over the carb and the control group and then a decrease in their uh, time to fatigue, I guess is a good way to put it comparatively. Yeah, I'm calling it, uh, it's, so their lean mass increase was pretty much identical. Um, so the people that I say like, you know, if you're low carb, you're not going to gain as much mass, they're wrong. It's the same. Uh, and then they're, I'm calling it fatigue resistance because it's power output. And then like time to fatigue is like a really long endurance test. Um, mm-hmm. So when we're looking at like a short term power output, so I'm just calling it fatigue Great. resistance. I like it. I like it. So from a mechanistic standpoint, talk about glycogen and why that's important. Because like when people first adapt into keto, they they do notice, you know, they them hitting a wall. They have less fatigue resistance um, until they get adapted to the point where they can replenish glycogen at the same rate. Kind of dive into uh, just the mechanism behind why that's important from a, a training standpoint. Yeah. So uh, when you first start. A ketogenic diet, you, most people experience uh, being tired or feeling like they can't perform as well. Uh, just in general, you have these adaptation syndrome uh, that we inappropriately call keto flu. In reality, it is very much carbohydrate withdrawals. They are withdrawal symptoms. You're removing something from your diet that you've developed a dependence on. They are carbohydrate withdrawals, and I'd like everybody to stop calling it keto flu. Uh, but beyond that, the glycogen. Part of that experience is you're not able to maintain your glycogen, uh, muscle glycogen at the same levels. And then so muscle glycogen is your stored carbohydrate, right? So if you're carbohydrate dependent and you don't have the stored carbohydrate that you need in order to turn into cellular energy, also known as ATP, you're not going to be able to maintain the same level of fitness as you would be previously until you learn how to use fat more efficiently or until you get those carbohydrate back either through diet or through the restoration of muscle glycogen. And even for um, somebody who is low carb and is using fat efficiently, um, the muscle glycogen still becomes relevant for high intensity exercise. And I would argue that muscle glycogen is even a little bit more relevant uh, just because of the free glucose or carbohydrate, wherever it's coming from the diet. It's not just like out in the blood, free to go and like ready for you to use because you're not consuming as much. So the low carb athletes need to pull from their glycogen storages. And uh, that's obviously just for the high intensity activity because we're very good at uh, differentiating and compartmentalizing. So if we're doing a lower intensity activity, we'll use all fat, like no problem. It's just during the higher intensity activity that we need to pull from our glycogen storages because it's only with glucose and other carbohydrate that we can derive ATP very quickly. Uh, and that's through anaerobic metabolism. That's, and if you, you know, that, that's occurring when you're performing exercise that generates lactic acid. So whenever you're feeling burn, the burn is coming. Lactic acid is produced as metabolic byproduct of glucose metabolism. So for the the carb dependent athlete, they're pretty much their body's going to default to burning through their glycogen relatively quickly within any given exercise. Whereas the fat adapted athlete is going to be able to uh, compartmentalize that 
primarily derive all the fuel from fat and ketones and then only tap into that stored glycogen at the highest peak intensity exercises? Yeah, for most people, yes, that's pretty much the case. Um, there are obviously outliers. So like really, really awesome ultra marathoners. I've seen like I've tested some of them and they'll burn, they'll be running almost full speed and they'll still be using really high fat uh, proportion of their energy still coming from fat, even though they are uh, carbohydrate based in their diet. Um, and the, but those are like Olympic level freaks, uh, for normal mm -hmm. people, like, <laughs> um, you're not going to be, you almost guaranteed you're not going to be able to oxidize fat at that high of a rate, uh, without manipulating the diet. And, um, so even for like the ultra endurance athletes that are fat adapted, um, they're using fat, like almost like, like 98% of their activity is going to be fueled by fat. Um, but I do still think it's advantageous if the um, four people in that space to have carbohydrate, if they're, because uh, during the event, it's, they're still going to have high intensity periods. They're going to go through a period of sprinting or, or what have you. But uh, yes, if you're, you're uh, fat adapted, you're going to be using principally fat even at higher intensities. So it goes up like 15%. So if you're normally going to cross over at like, 70%, which is about normal, you'll cross over at like 85%. When I say cross over, I mean, you'll use fat at lower intensities. Everybody does. And then you'll, you'll be in, you'll be running faster or working harder. And eventually you cross over to carbohydrate. Uh, and that just means more than 50%. When I say crossover, it doesn't mean like you're going from a hundred percent fat to hundred percent carb. It's just a relative proportion of where you're deriving your ATP. And that was Volek, I believe, his most recent study that suggested, like, I, I don't know the details on this, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically he was taking athletes that had been adapted for no less than nine months, and then they, it showed that they were able to replenish glycogen at the same rate as people consuming carbohydrates. Is that kind of the basis of that study? Yeah, that's um, what I think one of the most interesting outcomes of that study, yes. Um, the other one being that those guys also ate about 80 grams of carbs a day and they're still maintaining ketosis. And that's kind of what has led me to exploring the path that I have explored. But yes, those guys, well, they were measured over three hours of running and they measured their glycogen levels before, immediately after, and then two hours after. And the low carb athletes had the same muscle glycogen levels at every time point as the carbohydrate based athletes did and keep in mind these are world-class athletes so they're similar to uh, the person i was describing that's carbohydrate based in their diet but still oxidizing fat at a really high rate they're like that level of conditioning their elite level so from from that perspective if you're looking at athletes that are capable of replenishing glycogen at the same rate as people dependent on carbohydrates from a training perspective is there any benefits because um, like a lot of people argue that any glycolytic dependent exercise is is not going to be advantageous for a ketogenic athlete because they wouldn't be able to replenish that glycogen fast enough. Whereas if that study is indicating that that's not the case, is there anything that needs to be manipulated from a training perspective depending based off of what your primary fuel source is? Um, so two things to discuss. One can be uh, how we are timing carbohydrate, even on a, like a carbohydrate-based uh, diet, if we, we call it carbohydrate periodization. And then the second thing is uh, 
even though so like those guys are still maintaining their glycogen however they've conditioned themselves to do that because like i said they're extremely well-trained athletes um, and they've created the demand for their bodies to be able to do that and they're able to do that one of the other things i, I don't know if it's in that study or if it's in a different study but keto adaptation you start to increase these other uh, citric acid the krebs cycle cofactors like oxaloacetate and other factors and those that's what they're in and between that and protein and i'm sure glycerol and other substrates they're using those substrates to create the glycogen that ends up replenishing the stores that are progressively being depleted um, now those low carb athletes are going to use less glycogen so they have a little bit less to replace however it is still a little bit metabolically inefficient to use something like an oxaloacetate or a glycerol or an amino acid to create a molecule of glucose or glycogen uh, as opposed to just having it available um, through the diet. So there's a little bit of metabolic inefficiency and where metabolic inefficiency is great for fat loss and perhaps body composition optimization, it's not as good for people with really high energy demands as a component of their activity. Um, so those guys like even like just it's not even through like trial and error maybe maybe it is I don't know because I haven't interviewed them but you know where I observe that their diet is normally uh, like almost double a normal amount of carbohydrate consumed on a ketogenic diet at around 80 grams uh, they've just kind of come into that diet where they're maintaining ketosis with these extra carbs and maybe that that plays into how they're able to regulate uh, their processes that are are doing that um, but going back to the first thing I mentioned that just didn't want to forget to talk about it carbohydrate periodization which uh, so I'm thinking of one study in particular they ate five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day how and it was just manipulated around their training such that they only got it prior to high intensity activity and they were carbohydrate restricted prior to lower intensity activity so their steady state cardio and these were i believe they were trained cyclists if they weren't cyclists i think they were triathletes um mm -hmm. so they were they had their carbohydrates spaced out such that they were doing primarily fat-based uh work lower intensity work moderate intensity steady state cardio um and they're conditioning themselves by providing only fat to better utilize fat and then they're conditioning themselves at the higher intensities to utilize the carbohydrate when it's available and it creates it's kind of like uh, you know what we're kind of talking about with targeted ketosis where we're providing the extra carbohydrate where it's needed for high intensity activity whereas the rest of our time we're utilizing fat and uh, training ourselves to use ketones and, and fat or body fat to uh, supply the rest of our energy needs what what are some some symptoms that you notice yourself like if you train very intensely on a given day, for instance, and you do you like experiment, see how your body responds both in the absence of a, a targeted keto approach and then with a targeted keto approach just to compare the differences? Like what are some of the findings that you you notice? Yeah, so just anecdotally, um, even with like just a little bit of extra carbohydrate, I noticed like I'd started playing with this a long time ago because I'm just like a meathead. We were in the lab. And we were all that way, but <laughs> I noticed like you get flat when you first start 
Um, <clears throat> so I've been interested from the beginning on how to not have that flat feeling so I could get a pump and feel the burn and everything like I would get from normal or, or how I would train previously is um, just like as a feedback and like also like ego and vanity and whatever. Um, but I wanted to be able to feel those sensations. So I started playing with it. I was still in Tampa at the time, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I that comes back, um, pretty easily. And it's almost something that's a little bit, it's going to come back a little bit on its own through the restoration of your glycogen management processes, just endogenously. Um, and it's also going to become the new normal. So you're going to adjust to not having like crazy pumps, but you'll still have like regular, you know, this new regular pump. So it feels normal. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. So bringing the carbs back into in a targeted approach helps with that. Um, and then more recently where I've been using the mix of carbs and ketones, and I've been getting this feedback just this week because the products just started to go out, but I'm starting to get feedback where people are like, they're really, uh, feeling what I feel. And I'm very, I'm pretty happy that it's kind of confirming it, but, uh, you're just like, your energy is just, it doesn't deplete. Like you're not like, I'm keeping, like you keep working and you're just not continuing to get tired. And I notice that that's more pronounced when I'm supplying both substrates as opposed to when I'm just supplying carbohydrate. And that's, it's still relatively low in terms of the calories provided. So it's 18 grams of carbs and four grams of ketones. So roughly a hundred calories or so. Um, and it's, you know, not, not a crazy amount, obviously, but still feeling great in terms of the work capacity that can be performed, uh, even later on in the session. And this is compared to like eating like 50 to hundred grams of carbohydrate and you're getting like a little bit of a bump, but I think there's almost like a ceiling to how much you're going to use just based on comparing just these two unique sets of, of data, um, where I have the, the combination and the, the carbs alone. But uh, yeah, I definitely feel like uh, my own training has benefited and I've been training this way for a longer period of time than maybe most because it seems like it's been recently becoming popular to do targeted. Um, but I've pretty consistently worked it into my own training to have some targeted carbohydrate or some cyclical carbohydrate uh, within my own ketogenic diet. And I do feel like it's benefited my performance and my body composition changes. Do you notice hitting like the quote unquote wall at a given rep count i mean this is gonna be highly individualized per individual but when it comes to hitting a you know the wall i feel like the more keto adapted you are you have you're able to shuttle lactose out more efficiently so you don't have that same burning sensation as you do prior to keto adaptation but you still hit a wall is there like a, a particular rep count for just generally speaking that that you notice hitting that when you're on a strict keto version uh compared to like with the addition of the targeted carbs? I think that um, that's, so for me, it's more like a function of my training. And I hit that level like pretty early because I'm, I'm, as a power lifter, primarily I'm not doing a ton of reps. And if I am going to do a ton of reps, it's usually like considerably less weight. Um, so for example, like it was, what was it, uh, it was two days ago. Uh, because a friend did it for 10, I had to try and do it for 10 too. So I did ended up, I got 500 for eight in squats and like 
but like after like on the sixth rep because i've never done that weight for more than five because that's just how mm-hmm. like the training is programmed um most often and i did it for on the sixth rep i was my, like my legs were like i don't know what you're doing but i don't like it <laughs> uh so like for me it's around in the six to eight range really where i'll really start to feel it um but obviously you know it depends on the you know the load uh the exercise and and a bunch of other factors um but like it's a different kind of tired than i remember yeah um being like carbohydrate based um uh, where like in that aspect, it's almost like a mental, you'll, you'll, it's easier for you to reach a mental failure than it is to reach a physical failure. And depending on how your diet structure and your training structure and everything with low carb, I feel like if you're susceptible to reach a physical failure earlier, um, than you would if you were carbohydrate based, but you're more susceptible to reach a mental failure carbohydrate based, uh, than you are keto or low carb. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that well enough? I think like, so basically it's just coming from a fueling standpoint and depending on like you, you're more like you'll run out of energy, like cellular energy faster, potentially low carb, um, depending on the type of exercise. Of course, if you're doing endurance type exercise, you'll have much longer, uh, stores of energy. So now I'm just kind of talking in circles. <laughs> no, no, that, make, that makes sense for sure. I mean, for me, I definitely noticed like an actual physical burn, you know, when I was, Carb dependent, I guess that's more, more me just hitting my lactate threshold. Whereas now mm-hmm. that I'm keto, it's like I I don't have the burning sensation. Like I don't ever have that pain, but it's more of like a there's just no more like there's no more gumption to be able to get the weight up. I mean, it's just like a I'm hitting a wall, but it's like a, a painful physical like right. burning sensation whatsoever. Right. That's what I was basically I was trying to say. Like people will stop because like they're like, "Ow, this hurts. I'm done." But uh Usually, even when you know it starts to burn, you, I'm sure you know very well. You know you can squeeze out quite a few more reps yeah. after the burning sets in. For sure, for sure. So I don't. I mean, I feel bad because I'm I'm speaking mostly anecdotally. I don't have any any research papers that I can point to. I'm just kind of self experimentation uh, over the years. But since I've been keto, I haven't noticed any decrease in pump. And I, again, I know that, like you said, that it could be just a um, like you, your your new normal kind of equalizes and that becomes what you're used to. But I, I do feel like I get pretty freakish pumps now more so than when I was carb-based. Now, there may be some skewed variables there in the sense that when I was eating carbs, I was probably holding more water subcutaneously. So I would have a, a fuller look, I guess. So I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, when I first started keto, like most people describe, you you lose the pump you don't have near the vascular that you do but for me personally i've noticed that the longer i've maintained a ketogenic state the more vascular and the better pump i've been able to get while training of course i'm also training in a freakishly hot warehouse gym which probably makes it easier to get a pump but (laughs) yeah um so some of that i mean like uh your veins will become more apparent uh just through you know obviously losing body fat they help they'll stand out more. I'm not trying to argue with you say like that's not happening because it could absolutely be happening. And depending on maybe like what you're doing pre-workout, maybe you're getting a little bit of bump in ketones by like having some MCTs or something and then that the MCTs are shuttling any free glucose into the muscle because they have an insulinogenic type effect where they're going to help deposit the glucose. Um, and, but uh, following a, like a separate tangent, um, carbs and fat together actually help 
uh, angiogenesis, so the development of new veins. Just kind of like a fun little fact that'll increase like uh, vascular endothelial growth factors and things. So it'll help you um, get some more like like actually form new vessels. That's pretty sweet. I'll always use more vessels. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always, I'm still excited when I find <laughs> new veins. They're starting to pop out on my leg. Yeah, and I'm really into it. <laughs> Yeah, shoot yeah, man. I always like when I'm prepping for a show, I can kind of gauge what my body fat percentage is based off of when I'm able to see certain veins throughout my yeah, body. That's awesome. I haven't done a full prep, so I don't know. Oh, man, you, you got it. You, you're going to learn more about yourself in a prep. Like weird things start happening that last month of prep, especially if you've been prepping for a long time. But like your body, I don't know. I love bodybuilding because it's such a mental sport. But mm-hmm. you learn so much about your physical being in doing so. I mean, when you're pushed for that long and you're at that low of a caloric intake to the point where your body's literally using basically real time whatever you're ingesting, mm-hmm. you can just, I mean, you're like hypersensitive to any change that happens. So it's like you, you just, you're like a freaking wizard, man. Like you can take <laughs> in half an avocado and know exactly when it's going to hit your body, how it's going to respond to the tea. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is actually, that's, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't relate, but it, it sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk to me a little bit about um, beta-hydroxybutyrate, how that affects training. A lot of people market it as like a, like a weight loss or fat loss supplement, which I think you and I both agree that's not really the optimal use for it. Um, but from like a, a training, an anti-inflammatory standpoint, um, talk, talk about why that interests you from a performance standpoint, I guess. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't uh, say that, you know, like ketones are going to carry calories with them. Um, so <laughs> I do think that those are kind of funny. Um, I do think like they can help in from like uh, certain situations, but it, like again, it is very situational uh, where they could help with fat loss. But uh, for, uh, for performance, they're, as I just said, they're a fuel substrate. <clears throat> and they're cleaner burning, as we know. So they're when they uh, you're using ketones and fats, you're producing less free radicals uh, within the mitochondria. So you're preserving your mitochondrial health um, and uh, cellular health in general, just from having less free radical generation uh, to go around and bang things up and disrupt normal processes. Uh, and that ends up leading to reductions in inflama- uh, inflammatory markers. Uh, and we see, I think it's really cool from a recovery standpoint and also for people, uh, especially in contact sports, we see quite a bit of data, uh, where ketones are, uh, protecting from ischemic injuries. So where like, uh, oxygen supply is cut off to the brain, um, similar to creatine, it's like an extra, uh, ATP source that helps to, uh, preserve those cells, those extremely vital cells. Um, and the BHB being a, actually when you have a head trauma wherein those cells are traumatized, they, uh, they're actually damaged by glucose, but they're helped by ketones, uh, which I think is super interesting and really like key in understanding one of the, it's just another one of those factors that plays into how we understand the ketogenic low carb approach and like what we're supposed to be doing, like how are we're, we're built. Uh, what we're equipped to handle um, mm-hmm. and more on the performance side, just uh, like I mentioned earlier, like having them 
even with weight training and high intensity weight training, because most of my stuff is higher intensity and even lower volume, I'm not pushing the endurance aspect or the volume aspect most of the time. I just feel a lot better, uh, like I can go out and perform the work adequately, like it's not a drop off in my later sets. So if I'm doing five heavy sets where normally I'm getting tired after three, four and five are still good. They're not, I mean, they're, I'm not like 100% because I am a little bit tired, but I'm not like feeling like I'm going to go underneath the bar and be like, I don't know if I'm going to get this. Like I can go and I can hit the same weight and uh, yeah. do what I need to do. I've been using them intro workout just as a way to obviously get the BHBs in, but I think equally important just getting the, the electrolytes in. It's a really convenient way to get a high dose of sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, whereas most you know over-the-counter potassium pills, for instance, are capped at 99 milligrams. When you get a BHB salt, it's bound to those minerals, so it's a really efficient way to get that in. Yeah, that's a and good point on the potassium. So, uh, like, obviously, like, well, maybe not obviously, probably not obviously, but I have the the product and one of the key differentiators is having the potassium BHB in there and having it in there at a comparable quantity based on percent daily value to the sodium. So it's not like a sodium heavy product. Um, but mm -hmm. when I was getting all that together, I found uh, like all the products were 99 milligrams and that's done because of some completely uh, false sentiment that if you have 100 milligrams or more, then you're going to cause nerve damage. So I just think it's so funny that people are like, 100 grams yeah. is bad, but like 99 is okay. Okay, I'm going to do the 99. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. walk right up to the line and I'm going to stop. Like, no, guys, like it's fine. This is a, an essential mineral. And it's like, it's, I'm not trying to be like conspiracy theorists here, but it's just another one of those things that plays into when you look at the big picture stuff where people have high blood pressure and they're like, oh, it's sodium's fault. Uh, but they're like, you got to decrease your sodium intake, not saying anything about potassium's role in the excretion of sodium and how people are, you know, if you increase, it's not like you're eating too much sodium, it's that you're eating too little potassium. And if you just increase your potassium, the sodium will get pulled out, your blood pressure goes down. And these are, uh, these are normal people and non-keto people that I'm you know, thinking of the studies, but that's just how the body works. But then they're like, don't do more than 100 or don't do more than 99. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, man. I'm glad you brought that up because there's, there's so much just confusion that goes around electrolytes and how they function in the body. And I mean, your body can equalize and create a, you know, establish an equilibrium at different intakes of that sodium and potassium. So like you can reset it at a higher rate or right. reset it at a lower rate. You can kind of experiment, figure out what works well for you. But having a good solid baseline and just sticking to that, I mean, that's like probably the single greatest thing you could do to improve your musculature pumps while training and just energy throughout the day in, in totality. Yeah, for sure. Do you have like a specific ratio you try and shoot for? I've like personally found that about a two to one ratio of sodium to potassium over the course of, of a day works pretty well for me, counting what I'm getting from food. But is it like a specific number that, that you're striving for? Uh, personally, I'm not super invested in tracking uh, sodium potassium intake uh, or electrolyte intake in general. Um, just because like I'm uh, I've never really needed to because I've never gone through extended periods of restriction. If anything, I just come down a little bit and that's usually enough to get me somewhere where I want to be. I'm like perma bulking like my whole life. 
Um, so yeah. I'm not, I have no shortage of nutrients where it becomes an issue. Um, so I'm not conscious to that level, but just speaking broadly on recommendations and I just identified how I don't trust the recommendations. So, you know, <laughs> take this with a grain of salt. Uh, the ratio that's recommended is about two to one potassium to sodium. Um, and it's like 42 to 2300 milligrams, I think, are the recommended intakes. So I'm inverted from what is recommended. <laughs> yeah, but we're inverted on everything else. So like I said, it's really, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, do with it what you will. So um, no, but uh, no, it's, I, it's I, good, I, man. It's, and you're doing it with somebody who's exercising more because the recommendations aren't geared towards people who are athletic by any means at all. Um, so it yeah. is, there is a, a great deal to be said for how much goes into sweat where you're going to lose predominantly, I think it's like 80% or so of the electrolyte in sweat is sodium. I forget the exact number, but it's the primary one lost in sweat. So if you're somebody who sweats, I've always, and I've said this for a long time, if you're somebody who sweats, don't even worry about your sodium intake. You're just going to, it'll, it'll be lost. Um, and mm -hmm. you'll, you'll make the adjustments to let it be lost through urine. You'll be, you know, you'll lose it through sweat. So, um, where you're doing a two to one, uh, sodium to potassium, it may be that that's what you need to do. What is the, the potassium count on your, on your BHP? I actually just purchased that 30 minutes before this podcast recording. Oh, well, you should have told me I would have just sent it to you. Um, it, it no, varies. Man, I'm happy to support another business. <laughs> it varies based on the product. Um, this one's like 20, I think it's 24% of the daily value. So it's roughly a thousand. Nice. Nice. Talk about, you, you kind of alluded to a little bit, but you're training more with the focus of on, on intensity over volume. Kind of flesh that out. I'm actually going to make a video on that soon because there's so many people that don't really have a good grasp for the difference and how they should manipulate that based off of their training goals. But from, uh, you know, you, you being a, a powerlifter more so than a bodybuilder, talk a little bit about why you focus on intensity and what you would probably want to do if your focus was strict hypertrophy and just kind of dive into that realm a little. Sure. Um one note on the, we're talking about the true BHB, like the strict BHB product where I'm giving you that ratio. I, it is manipulated on the other products. So like the carbohydrate, which is intended to be like an intro workout, it's much more sodium, much less of the other electrolytes. So depending on what you go look at, don't quote me on that. So uh, for those of gotcha. but uh, <laughs> make a note of that. Anyway, but moving on to the important stuff. Um, <clears throat> so training there's a, a pretty good argument between like what's more important dieting or training. Um, I usually lean towards uh, training, even though, uh, you know, my background's in nutrition and, and this, we're talking about dieting primarily here. And I spend a lot of time talking about dieting and I work in supplements. So it's all dietary supplements. But I think the training stimulus is ultimately what dictates what the nutrients do. Um, you can think of it that way. Um, or mm -hmm. how the nutrients are supporting the body in supporting the training. Uh, but the intensity volume relationship, basically, um, so there's a good study by Schoenfeld, uh, looks at people training at a given intensity. We'll, we'll just say, for simplicity, say low intensity and high intensity, but they're keeping the volume of exercise the same. <clears throat> so those guys, after their training period, uh, they're looking at muscle, they're looking at strength gains, and same volume of exercise, they gained the same amount of muscle mass, but the guys training at a higher intensity had a greater increase in strength. Now, the drawback to that is practical applications. You know, how are you going to go in and do twice as many sets 
in a given period of time at a high intensity. Like you can't do that. It's going to take you longer. So for real people, uh, it's not always feasible to train high intensity, high volume. And then, you know, you obviously joint health comes into play, just beating on yourself all the time. Um, so there's practical limitations to that, but just in a general sense, more volume, regardless of how you get it, even if it's lower intensity, um, to an extent, you don't want to go like super low unless your blood flow restricted, but that's another discussion. Um, the volume is size and intensity is strength. So how much weight is you're actually lifting? Um, but really intuitive if you're training with heavier weights, it'll help you get stronger. Um, if you're doing more volume, more size of, you know, you're going to get more size. Gotcha. Gotcha. So with like if volumes equated for, and you're focusing on, uh, you, you have a focus on intensity over volume. Like if you're trying to lift heavy and hard, you have to do obviously fewer reps of a given exercise to hit that same volume count. Right. If vol total overall volume is the same, the, the shown degree of muscle growth is, is also shown to be the same? Yeah, so as long as the volume of the training, in this, at least in this study, and I, I do think it's true, um, if the volume of exercise is the same, the degree of muscle growth should also be the same. Is there, this is again going to be highly individualized based off of training experience, muscle maturity, et cetera, et cetera, but is there mm -hmm. like a particular volume count that you strive for on a given workout, like north of X number? Uh, I don't typically do that. If I had to give you a ballpark, um, if it's a volume day, uh, depending on the body part, if it's legs, which is really the only one I keep track of, <laughs> uh, it's going to be like minimum 40,000 pounds of volume. Gotcha. gotcha. Unless it's leg press, then I'm going to do a little more just because leg press is kind of cheating. But I don't like doing leg yeah. press because then I got to unload all the weight and that's cardio. Yeah, it's, some, of the, some of the exercises are definitely cheating, like calf raises, for instance. You can load that thing up and do 20 yeah. reps and <laughs> 10 sets and <laughs> rack up some yeah, volume it, for it, sure. That brings up another important discussion. So you get into inter individual differences. Um, you know, your range of motion in a squat is X feet, uh, but your range of motion in a calf press is like three inches. So, but that also mm -hmm. comes into play with like limb length. So, I mean, it's no secret to powerlifters if you have long arms, bench pressing is hard, but deadlifting is easy and vice versa. So it, there's a right. quantity, you know, work is force times distance. So it's not just the weight and it's not just like, oh, I did this many reps, but it's actually I moved. In reality, it's I moved 100 pounds, five feet, or I moved uh, 50 pounds, 10 feet, my, my math, right, or 100 feet, whatever one works out to be the same thing. Um it's just kind of, it's a relationship of your work, not necessarily. Right. Do you use like a specific software app or anything to track on your training days? Uh, no, I use uh, uh, the old-fashioned notepad and pen uh, with a little bit yeah. of Excel at the beginning in order to map it all out. Uh, but after I map it out, I'd like, I'll pull it up, I'll email it to myself, and then I pull up the spreadsheet on my phone, and then I keep tracking the notepad. I wanted to pick your brain kind of on a less technical basis about just the you know the the state of the keto community as a whole when it relates to you know this whole carb up phenomenon um you know cyclical targeted strict all this I, you're you're in the keto space now whether you want it to be or not you know uh -huh. and you're seeing the discussions online and I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion of just everything that's going on and, and i know some people get so stuck into certain ways of thinking that they're they become very short-sighted mm -hmm. um 
So just kind of, I don't know, just speak your mind on what you're seeing right now. Um, it's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let me, uh, let me answer it this way. So one of the reasons I wanted to start doing um, the targeted keto research was to kind of bridge between the traditional nutrition communities, sports nutrition communities, and what I believe to be true, which is low carb has its a, like a very distinct set of advantages, and it's almost every aspect is advantageous. And the only real drawback I can find to that low carb ketogenic camp is that your high intensity performance might suffer depending on uh, the volume that's performed at that high intensity. Because if you just go do like a little bit, um, you know, maybe it's not going to have a significant impact. Um, or if you're doing, you know, one sprint and you have this decrease, then, you know, uh, how real is that? But I wanted to try and bring these together and say, because like one camp looks at one like they're crazy and the other camp looks at the other like they're crazy. But if we're like, mm -hmm. oh, we're willing to take a step in your direction, please accept us. <laughs> and maybe we can start to like move and like have like productive discussions as opposed to just I'm right, you're wrong. This says this. And the other people are like, yeah, but this is what's wrong with that. And this says this. And they're like, well, that's what's wrong with what you said. And I'm still right because this X, Y, Z. Um, so I, with the keto community, um, I'm afraid that that same type of thing might happen and we could lose our cohesion, which would be extremely unproductive um, mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. <clears throat> and then I have other concerns like where we have uh, like all of like, you know, and like low fat craze or I don't want to call it craze, whatever, whatever that was, the low fat movement, we have all these products come out like, okay, well, we're low fat, but they're just bumping the sugar. They're doing other sensory things, introducing a lot of artificial stuff in order to create right. Uh, products that are palatable and equally palatable to their higher fat options, um, which was unsuccessful. And now we're kind of like getting into that phase with low carb, even though like once we get like the science, like like it's probably going to be 10, 20 years from now when people like us grow up into this, uh, knowing these ideas and the people who are stuck in the mud in the past uh, – are no longer making decisions that it actually becomes like a very broad recommendation and we'll see like a true boom in those types of products where it becomes a real mm -hmm. problem. Um, <clears throat> but I do get a little bit worried that we end up introducing a, a ton of artificial stuff where it's not as healthy apparently because right now and the early stages, it's like, okay, I'm going to go keto. What can I eat? Like meat, oils, vegetables and nuts and that's like it <laughs> some dairy and now it's like well i can be keto and just eat butter and bacon and whey protein and, and protein bars and uh, these cookies and these shakes and these other things and i'm doing it just fine like yeah you're in ketosis but you're like a time bomb now so um yeah in terms of like attitudes that way and like making sure people come up into the diet correctly is important um yeah i just hope it doesn't like self-destruct <laughs> no i totally agree man i feel like you know what what you're bringing to the table from a research perspective you know is very cutting edge and it's definitely 
what the community needs because we need people that are open-minded and, you know, pushing the envelope to see what is right and wrong. And, you know, we need, we need people like that to be able to kind of test the waters and see what's happening. I'm definitely in the camp of very, very strict keto. Like I don't, I haven't had the carb ups. I don't do TKD or CKD or any variation thereof, but on the same I'm doing something similar to you, but on a different spectrum. Like I'm trying to to learn as much as I can from a self-experimentation standpoint to see what is possible when you allow yourself to truly be strict keto for extended periods of time. Because I think, you know, like I've said in multiple podcasts, being adapted for five plus years is different than being adapted for five plus months. And there's not really any good test subjects to see from a performance standpoint and from a longevity standpoint, what's possible when you are, you know, strict keto for that long. So I'm, I'm excited to see what I can find out in that regard, but I don't try to, to knock people that are doing like a target or cyclical approach, like to each their own. I don't think anybody has the right to tell anybody what they should put in their mouth. And the fact that people are, is just comical to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I would like to make a point for people that are listening and do follow like targeted or cyclical or what have you. And just kind of like a short story, like I got my mom started on keto a long, like three years ago, maybe. Um, so pretty long. Um, but when I sent her that first email, I was like, this is how you track. These are your numbers. Uh, make sure you're plugging everything in. Don't forget drinks. And even though like you can't have any drinks besides like water and unflavored stuff and whatever. But uh, I told her in that first email, like, do not no matter what you do, bump your carbs up because if you're, or like, because if you have them both at the same time, like you're going to get heart disease. I just like, <laughs> I was like very, like yeah. just yeah. point blank about it. Um, and that was even like coming, my, my mom's not active like I am. So it's a, uh, it's a little bit of a different scenario overall, but it was like, my perspective was it's eating the two at the same time that is producing negative effects and that's really what we see that's like the standard american diet it's like 40 40 20 and those two 40s are not one of them's not protein so it's becoming an issue because they're just basically energy nutrients and we have this oversupply of energy um and then you know it's, the carbohydrates are limited in their scope of function whereas fat has designated bodily functions obviously protein has designated bodily functions so we just have this excess of a pure energy nutrient that we're introducing into the equation and then of course our activity is down based on how we've evolved so i just saw it as like a, a like i get a little nervous when i or i was nervous when i started to like promote this and to push the the message to incorporate more carbohydrate because people can get they use it as an excuse. They'll get carried away. People that aren't measuring, the people that aren't posting their numbers on Instagram and everything that are saying like, oh, look how good I'm doing. I did this. A lot of people, because there's going to be a lot more people who try it. They're going to go out and be like, oh, Danny and Jordan ate 200 grams of carbs yesterday. I'm going to do that. And uh, it's the, but a completely different scenario. And they're going to justify it because we did it. And they're just going to go out and like pig out on pizza and tacos or whatever and take it out of context and then end up being on a standard American diet, maybe just for that day, but still, uh, I don't know. I just don't, I don't want people to be doing it wrong. <laughs> right. Right. And you look at the keto population as a whole, you know, I have to assume that the, the vast majority is coming from a background of carb addiction, 
some type of metabolic dysfunction, uh, you know, eating disorders, something like that. And the last thing that they need to have <laughs> experimentation with probably carbs. And people do have a very skewed idea of what, you know, an intense workout is. Like a, a, a hard day of doing laundry does not warrant a 200 gram <laughs> carb up. No. Definitely not. Um, I was, it's funny. I just noticed like I was in the bathroom before I came out. Of the, I was squatting this morning. Um, heavy as singles because I'm doing more traditional max effort work. I noticed in the – this is pretty normal, but I noticed it happened today. I didn't realize that it had. But, you know, you get all the little burst blood vessels in your eyes and in mm. your neck. And I wanted to throw something up like this is what it looks like when you're training heavy and like you're actually pushing the envelope. Um, but you know, like I know regular people don't do that. So, uh, no, I'm excited, man. I'm excited for it all. Like I'm, I'm excited, you know, selfishly for me to see how being strictly keto adapted for as long as I have can impact my performance going forward because I'm kind of, and see, this is where it's frustrating for me, man, because there's not really any studies that look at the long-term adaptation, you know, like on a, a neck to neck basis with carbon adapted athletes because like I said, there's just not really any test pool that you can, mm -hmm. you know, use. Um, but like, I'm kind of like my personal belief is that once I've been able to become as adaptive as I am, my performance is only improved. And i like, to me, it's not worth it to go back like on a, on a cute level. Do I think that having a, a carb up would totally wipe the slate clean of the five years of progress I made? No, absolutely not. But for me personally, it's not worth it to to continue to just try the carb ups because I feel so great with the strict keto and I don't feel like my performance has suffered whatsoever. But most people probably don't have the desire to be strict keto. I mean, you look at the majority of people that are on the keto diet, and most of them, they're going to go and they're going to have, you know, carbs on special events and with their mm -hmm. kids and all that stuff. So I don't know, I'm kind of an outlier in that regard, but. I feel like the idea of performance from a super strict keto standpoint is, is a fascinating facet as well. So it's, it's cool to, I don't know, I, I like, I appreciate the work you're doing from a targeted and a cyclical standpoint and getting more data there. And I'm excited to see what I find out going forward as well, but just simply cutting, be on the cutting edge of any type of nutritional or fitness protocol is, is exciting. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I, I want to see it too, because we don't really have that data. Uh, from a scientific perspective, I'm interested to see what happens and uh, and where things go with, with what we're both doing. So there's definitely mutual interest there. Absolutely. Well, cool, man. I don't want to take up any more time. I know you got a lot going on, um, but we'll definitely have to do this again because I feel like you know we're both doing some interesting experiments. So it'd be cool to like follow up and see what we find out over the course of the next several months. Are you training for anything in particular going forward? Like, is there a specific event or meet that you're prepping for? Do not have a specific one lined up. I am thinking about doing one towards the end of the year. Uh, it's in the fall sometime. I forget the exact one, uh, but it'll kind of depend on, yeah, I mean, I'll probably do it because I am doing a little bit better. Everything for me when I decide to compete is compared to how I did the last time I competed. And I only really want to do it if I'm going to beat the numbers that I did last time. Uh, mm -hmm. But they're they're looking pretty good, so it's a good chance it will happen before. But I have not set a date yet. Very cool. Well, definitely keep me posted on that, man. I'm rooting for you. I have no doubt that you'll blow past the last set of numbers because, I don't know, I see you training and whatnot on Instagram. You're pushing some heavy weight just in the day-to-day. -day. Burst some yeah. blood vessels at least. 
<laughs> it's got to be heavy enough to burst blood vessels, you know. That's but right. Appreciate that's it. Right. Appreciate it. Where can uh, people go to find out more about you, man? The the supplement line line just launched this week, correct? That's Archetype Nutrition. Yep, uh, Archetype Nutrition. We're at archetypesups.com. I got a bio on there if you wanted to know about me. There's also the ebook, which is available if you go to all products. It's called The New Rules of Keto. Uh, basically tells you to eat more protein and how to structure a targeted carbohydrate ketogenic diet approach. Um, and then for me personally, I'm at most active on Instagram at Jordan M. Joy. And that's Jordan with an A. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jordan, again, man, I really appreciate the time, your wealth of knowledge, and I look forward to seeing any. Any experiments you have going forward, man, keep me posted on things. All right. I absolutely will. Thank you so much. Take care, bud.